Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double N. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 597 of the podcast and it is Sunday the 9th of January 2022 as I record this from back in Bath and it is cold and wet and I am totally jet lagged (laughs) but I am very happy to be home. So in today's show, I'm talking to William Kanoa about self-doubt, where it comes from, the different kinds and how to deal with it, as well as thoughts on validation, book marketing and more. So that's coming up in the interview section. In publishing and book marketing news, well, if you'd like some help with planning your author business for 2022, then check out the Ask Ally podcast, A-L-L-I, with me and Orna Ross this week, where we cover aspects of planning and give some examples for writing, publishing, book marketing and financials. So uh, actually, that will be last week as you hear this. So on the Ask Ally podcast or go to selfpublishingadvice.org and all the links are there. And we go through, yeah, all kinds of different things and also share some examples. I always find it funny with Orna because I'm sort of more organised on the day-to-day basis, but she has a sort of much more in-depth planning process than I do. Also this week, the Six Figure Authors podcast covers your publishing choices in episode 114, discussing self-publishing, traditional or hybrid, which choice is the right for you. And I was thinking about this uh, because, of course, it depends on what your book or your story is and the rights you're considering. For example, I'm doing some short stories at the moment and I have submitted for some anthologies. And of course, contracts for short stories are usually only for six months uh, versus many contracts are for the life of copyright, certainly for novels. And might be different for nonfiction, but definitely depending on the type of book you're doing, the publisher you're going with, um, and of course a traditional publishing deal for foreign language rights uh, might be something you want to pursue, even if you want to self-publish in English. So it's all a lot of mix and match. I also think your personality has a lot to do with this and what you're willing to learn. Now, I used to think that everyone could be successful with self-publishing, but I no longer think that's true because you definitely need the right attitude, a willingness to learn, to take responsibility for everything from writing to publishing to marketing. Certainly, you need to be able to manage multiple tasks, even if you don't do them all yourself and you need to be working with freelancers, etc. You also need to be reasonably comfortable with a computer and things on the internet. (laughs) I get some people who email me and say, I don't like technology at all. I don't know why they would come to me. (laughs) But they say, you know, I, I just, I want someone to do it for me. I don't want to engage with the technology. I don't want to engage with marketing. And in that situation, you know, looking for a traditional publisher for your manuscript might be the way forward because you do, I mean, you don't need to be techie. You don't need to be a programmer. You don't need to know code in order to publish, but you definitely need to have an attitude of trying things out and clicking on things and looking at things and learning. Uh, A lot of this, a lot of our work as indie authors now is on the computer in this digital age. 
So anyway, that's uh, the Six Figure Authors podcast this week on different kinds of publishing. And talking of audio, if you haven't licensed your audio uh, and you're interested with the rise and rise of audiobooks, perhaps you're considering audio narration for your book in 2022. Well, excitingly, the Find A Way Marketplace is now live. And uh, I talked about that last year. It was on its way. It is now live. So if you log into your account or create a new one at findawayvoices.com, you will see a new function and you can search uh, narration there are you can specify gender availability different types of voices and then check out the narrator profile which have all these samples and bios and it's definitely a really good marketplace so um, that is the findaway marketplace live at findawayvoices.com in futurist stuff well there are rumors that apple will unveil some augmented reality ar glasses this year possibly some vr virtual reality glasses but Augmented reality is essentially a layer on top of our real world. And I wanted to mention a very cool glimpse of AR that you can try at home because increasingly there are apps and things that you can do with your phone. If you, you know, Pokemon Go was the famous one, you hold it up in the real world and you can see little monsters. Well, <laughs> this this just came up and I wanted to tell you about it. We're thinking of getting a pet and I was Googling different breeds of cats. So um, the one I was looking at was the Scottish Fold, which is very cute and very friendly. So this is how I found this very cool AR thing. So go to the Google app. It has to be the Google app on your phone. I have an iPhone. Hopefully it will work on other phones. But go to the Google app. Search for Scottish Fold. And I got when I did this and I did it in New Zealand and I've done it again here in England and the same thing came up. So hopefully it'll work for you. Uh, On the first page of search results, you should see a Wikipedia entry and then below it, it says meet a life-sized Scottish fold close up. You can click view in 3D and then view in your space. And it puts the little cat in your room and then it meows and licks its paws and moves around and you can go up closer to it and it will get bigger and it's as if you approach it for real even though you're looking at it through the screen. Now I found this absolutely delightful so did my mother-in-law in in her 70s and we were like oh it's so cute and we were smiling and we were talking to it and it was incredible how fast we behaved Because, of course, my mother-in-law has cats. If you've seen my pictures on Instagram, uh, her little cat Bellini, I was cuddling her a lot. And so that's why we were thinking of getting a cat again. Anyway, try this and see how you feel. Like, I felt emotional towards this augmented reality cat. (laughs) I mean, it's not absolutely like real life but they've done it really well and see how your kids react Uh, it's it's just super delightful and it's a good example of what can happen when you use AR to uh, to in a playful manner but also it's quite useful because the idea is you can try out these different breeds and it will show you their physical size in your house and they have some dogs as well. So with many of these new technologies, it's hard to imagine how it might work. But if you think about wearing a pair of glasses so you don't have to have the phone held up as a screen, you can imagine that cat wandering around the room and then consider some of the other possibilities. So uh, I use Apple Plus Fitness here at home and uh, the trainer is on the screen. But what if they could be life size in my room working out 
with me, I think that would be much more convincing. I know there's some running apps where you see someone pace it. You can follow a pacer, a a pacing runner, which is super useful. So uh, then, of course, as authors, there are going to be lots of applications. So, for example, instead of me reading a chapter of my book on YouTube as a talking head or even doing something like this uh, or uh, reading my audiobook to you, what if we could actually have a virtual self reading in someone's house or Uh, I take you on a walk around London actually in augmented reality so you can see me right there talking about the places as we get there. So I think there are going to be many very interesting things coming in this space, very creative, very useful and I wanted to share the little AR cat with you because I think it's quite convincing and fun and delightful and uh, might just give you a glimpse of how AI, AI, (laughs) AR (laughs) might work and might spark some ideas. So in my personal update, as I said, I'm back in Bath and I'm in my audio booth. I hope you can hear the difference in sound quality. And if you can't, don't worry. It's one of those things that I found developed as I did more and more audio. So although it's cold and wet here and and the jet lag is so bad coming from New Zealand. Uh, you know, I, I, <laughs> I can't stay awake past about 5pm. So I wake up at midnight and uh, I'm recording this very early on a Sunday morning. And uh, yeah, it's quite annoying. But there you go. I know it will fade. And uh, all you Americans, you can just go and get melatonin. We can't do that here. And my the melatonin I'd bought from America last time I was there had run out. <laughs> so I was out of, uh, out of date. So um, I'm doing this without melatonin. Uh, yes. Yeah, so I wanted to sort of talk about the trip to New Zealand because, of course, I know many people are not doing international travel or even domestic travel at the moment. So it was straight. I mean, going there, I talked about this in my year end thing. It was very, very difficult. It essentially took two weeks <laughs> to get there because uh, with all the various testing requirements, then the quarantine and the isolation and all of that, it, it felt it also felt a lot longer because we managed to get a slot in quarantine six months before we prepared a lot. So it, it felt like the journey there took so long. But then coming home was super quick. It was almost like old times. So yes, I had to get a test before boarding. I wore a mask, but it was still just get on a plane and be home within sort of 28 hours. Of course, I'm now here in the UK. I've I've done two tests and just waiting for the result of another one before I can get out and about. (laughs) But it just felt a lot quicker and it made me much more confident to get on with traveling. I also really appreciated the international side because when you get on the plane, uh, I fly Emirates, we, we like Emirates, and they announce how many languages the air stewards speak. And this is something perhaps I didn't pay much attention to before, but they said uh, they had 11 nationalities and 12 languages spoken on the plane. And I just appreciated that in our international world. And then uh, we stopped in Kuala Lumpur and uh, a lot of Malaysians got on board. And I just, and I met some people who were going home to India um, via Dubai. And uh, there was a pilot heading back to Uganda. And there was just this lovely sense of international people. And Dubai airport is so diverse. It really is a hub where people fly all over the world. There are different languages everywhere. You can pay in so many currencies. 
And then I was there for the dawn and it made me smile to listen to the muezzin call the faithful to prayer. And that sound, um, I haven't heard that sound for years now. And it's a sound that I worked out in the Middle East and uh, traveled in Egypt and traveled in Muslim countries where you, you hear the muezzin. And I just I listened, sat there listening to it, just thinking, I am so grateful <laughs> to be here right now. And yeah, I wanted to mention it because I said I'd fallen out of love with travel on my year end and the last show. And this trip back gave me a glimpse of what it might be like again. Now, I think there are probably always going to be masks. There are probably always going to be some kind of boostery things. But the trip has made me more confident to get traveling internationally again. So more to come in 2022. Enough of the COVID rut. Uh, I just, I'm sure we all want to get on with our lives. I also, since, uh, you know, it's important to think about the environment <laughs> as a as a, a traveller. Uh, and I should mention that I don't have a car. And of course, we're child free, very happily child free. So I feel like <laughs> my main impact on the environment is flying. <laughs> but I did some research on electric planes. And there are a number of startups in the space. And Amazon is looking at electric cargo planes, which is interesting. Uh, obviously, they have a lot of money to invest in this stuff. There are also electric seaplanes being used in Canada and Australia. So while these big passenger carriers are no doubt a few years off, there is investment and the travel industry knows it has to change. In the meantime, there are carbon offsets very easily bought for those of us who have cross-hemisphere families and who love to travel. So thanks for your emails and tweets and comments. I love to hear from you. Roland Denzel said on Twitter, I love that this acknowledges that sleep requirements vary. There are ways to improve sleep and be on off schedule. Yes, absolutely. And this, of course, is about the sleep episode we had last week. Patty Jansen said, I listened this morning. Uh, thank uh, Anna for saying the truth. Not everybody absolutely needs eight hours. And there is nothing wrong with you if you don't sleep that long. If you're not tired, it's not insomnia. <laughs> Catelyn Duncan said, I needed this. I've recently started sleep tracking and the data has been interesting. I'm constantly finding new ways to improve my sleep. And finally, Nick Lang says, wait, writers need to sleep? <laughs> I must say, I just started to get my sleep into a better pattern in the last sort of 10 days of the year when I reduced my caffeine, cut down my alcohol <laughs> and uh, generally just started to be careful. And now, of course, I'm in jet lag. So sleeping is annoying. <laughs> Anyway, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen and send me pictures of where you're listening. Uh, or in fact, you can, <laughs> the little cat I mentioned, you can actually take a screenshot. So you could take a picture of your virtual cat and send it to me. Tweet me at The Creative Pen. Email me, joanna at thecreativepen.com or leave a comment on the blog or the YouTube channel. I love to hear from you. It makes this much more of a conversation. So today's show is sponsored by findawayvoices.com, appropriate because of the new marketplace. Now, I use Findaway Voices to distribute my audiobooks to over 40 retailers and library services, including Google Play, Storytel, Kobo and Nook Audio, Scribd, Overdrive, Hoopla and more. You can also use them to distribute to the mainstream services like Audible and Apple Books. Plus, as you retain control of your intellectual property, you can sell the books direct through Authors Direct and you can also sell on your own site, as I do with my audiobooks through Payhip, which I integrate with BookFunnel. 
It also has distribution to Chirp, which is owned by BookBub, and is a great way to sell audiobooks in price promotion deals. And with the library services, you can get paid per checkout, making it much easier for libraries to afford your audiobook. Your listeners get it for free, and you still get paid. And yes, you should be able to get most of my audiobooks through your library app. So a few years ago, there were only a couple of dominant audiobook services, but the pandemic has accelerated the adoption of digital audio around the world. And listeners are comfortable with trying new ways of listening, like subscription models, as well as buying direct. With Findaway Voices, you retain control and you can set your own price, so you can take advantage of opportunities as they arise. Or you can opt out of any retailers you don't want to distribute to. In late 2021, Spotify bought the parent company, Findaway. And in my opinion, this is a potential new, exciting market that could bring us access to many millions more listeners who we can bring into our ecosystem. So we don't know the exact opportunity, but we do know that every year for the last five at least, audiobooks have expanded as a market. And I've been banging on about this for a decade. (laughs) So the future looks exciting for more audio opportunity in the years to come if you control your rights. So you can use Findaway Voices in a number of different ways. You can manage the audio production separately and upload files for distribution, as I do with my self-narrated audio. You can use their service to find a narrator to work with, as I have done with my Mapwalker trilogy. You can even set up contracts with existing narrators, as I'm just done with my latest audiobook, Tomb of Relics. My narrator Veronica and I like having the find-away contract and production management side of things, even though we've been working together for years. I love find-away voices and every one of my audiobooks with human narrators goes through them now. So take back your audio freedom and check out findawayvoices.com for your next audiobook project. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing, but my time in creating the show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons. And uh, thank you to all the new and returning patrons in the last few weeks, Connor Whiteley, Alexandra Isabel, Katie Forrest, Jennifer Anderson and Julia V. Thanks to everyone who's been supporting the show for months and years. You are all fantastic. And of course, if you support the show, you get the extra Q&A audio which I record every month and I answer your questions about all kinds of things and share some stuff behind the scenes just for a couple of dollars or whatever your currency is a month. You can go to patreon.com p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Right let's get into the interview. William Kanawa is the author of non-fiction books on writing, the editor-in-chief of Author Magazine, and the host of the Author to Author podcast. His latest book is Everyone Has What It Takes, a writer's guide to the end of self-doubt. So welcome to the show, Bill. Thank you, Joanna. It's good to be here. Oh, it's great to have you on the show. So start off, tell us a little bit more about you and how you got into writing and publishing. Well, uh, writing, I got into very young. Uh, That was, I knew the arts were really the only path I was interested in. And though I dabbled in theater pretty seriously in my early to mid twenties and thought and went to Hollywood briefly with the idea of being a screenwriter, uh, prose was really where I was most comfortable and writing and prose was where I was most comfortable. And so that was really always 
the plan for me. I really didn't have any, I really couldn't imagine. I knew people did want to be things besides artists, but it was hard for me to understand why. It just seemed like the best possible way to earn a living if you could do that. And so that was, I was very singularly set on that. As far as publishing though, I did not, when I thought about being a writer, publishing was simply what other people did. You know, it was like a giant oven run by agents and editors that into which I inserted a manuscript and out popped mysteriously a fully baked book. I didn't see myself as getting into publishing. Although, interestingly, Joanna, actually, I was thinking about this beforehand. Mm. In a way, because I know this, this podcast, a lot of your listeners are indie published. The theater I did when I was in my early 20s, my brother and I put on a sketch comedy show. And it came about because I was doing poetry readings that were very theatrical. And my brother and I said, let's do a show. And part of the reason we did it was I was writing out, writing stories and poems and sending them off to magazines and was not enjoying, of course, I just didn't like the rejection, of course. Hmm. But also I was frustrated with the gatekeeper setup, what I thought of as the gatekeeper. I thought, well, why does this one person determine who gets to read my stuff? It seemed weird. And I, and when I found myself standing on a stage, I, cause it was sort of like, I was going to just art spaces and areas where anybody could just get up and do stuff, sort of like open mic type situations. I thought, well, why not just find some place where I put the thing up and anybody who wants to come can come and they can decide if they like it or not. So it was kind of essentially self-publishing theater. I wrote it. My brother and I directed it. We found the venue. We put up the posters and people started coming. So it was, it was like independent. It made sense to me at the time. I would also argue you're a podcaster and this is publication. We create a yep. product with our voices. We hit publish yep. and no one else gets in the way, right? You, how long have you no. been podcasting now? I've been podcasting for like 10 years. And even before that, this is what I was going to say is, so I was writing and submitting. And remember, when I started writing fiction, this was in the early 90s. And so self-publishing was such a hard sell because of it just they didn't have the digital world, right? Mm, and there was and a big so, stigma back then. Oh, and it was a stigma around it. And I just had zero interest in it. So I was wanting to publish traditionally and having not having much luck. But when I started Author Magazine, I was publishing an essay every day. I would write one a day, but I was the editor in chief. So there was, I was the gatekeeper. So I was essentially self, not essentially, I was self-publishing. It's just that I had an established audience and that was really where I found my voice. And I think one of the challenges that people have around publishing, and it's a pretty, it's not even disguised. The idea of getting published traditionally, which I am now, like that's what I do. Latest, last few books were, but there's a wanting of validation. I mean, that's a big reason people go towards the publishers. They want that validation and they feel that they'll get it. They'll feel that validation in themselves when a New York publisher says, yeah, we'll take your book. I don't think you can get that from other people until you give it to yourself. And, 
And I, when I w- published those essays without any gatekeeper, without even barely a proofreader, frankly, I didn't finally find someone who would proofread them because I was putting them out so fast. I was saying to myself, I don't need to look to anybody. And that really taught me how to work with traditional publishers to find the correct emotional set point to work with people in the traditional publishing world that I really got from being essentially self-published. Does that Hmm. make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting because you mentioned validation there. And of course, this book, uh, you've got a number of books, but this one is about the end of self-doubt. And I feel what's so interesting in the traditional industry is uh, a lot of there's a lot of rejection, as you mentioned, which amplifies self-doubt even further. So let's get into it. What are the different ways that authors might experience self-doubt? What are the different aspects of when you might feel that way? Well, I think it basically writing is like a task designed to confront your own feelings of self-doubt because you sit down and you face a blank page and really all you know is that you're interested in the story, right? Like that's all you know about the story, that you're interested. You don't know who else is going to be interested in it. You have to trust the fact that you're interested is enough to A, that that story is worthy of your attention, and that if you're interested, someone else might be interested, but it's not known. That is a level of faith that you need because all you have is what's inside you. So that's where it starts. The fact that you're interested is has to be enough. I always tell my, when I'm giving these talks, it's like, that's all Shakespeare got that's all Emily Dickinson or Toni Morrison or Stephen King or Joanna Penn. Like, that's all you get. Eventually, people start saying, oh, I really like your stuff. That's nice. But it doesn't start there. It doesn't start there, you know? And even if you get praise as a young person, there's that step to professionalism. Does the praise you get from your teachers or parents or whoever, does it translate? Will it translate? And it's very easy to wonder, to, to question whether it would. So I think it begins right away. And then I also think it begins, it happens every time you reach the end of a sentence and you're not sure what comes next, right? This is common experience. You're writing along, it's going great. Then you're not sure what comes next. And that is the moment where you also have to deal with self-doubt because you have to trust that the next idea will come. The next sentence will come. And if you begin to doubt that it will come, it won't, period, period. As long as you are holding doubt that the next idea will come, it's like you're holding the door to where ideas come from closed. So you have to be in a constant trusting state to allow the ideas to come, right? Because if you knew the whole thing, you wouldn't write it. You wouldn't write Mm -hmm. it. You're writing to discover. And then, of course, rejection, because when rejection is just Look, I, I am also, I'm the editor of Author Magazine. So people send me ideas for articles and I say no to some of them, to a lot of them. And it's not, and a lot, sometimes it's because they're just not the kind of thing I want to publish. Sometimes it's too similar to something I have published recently. And a lot of times it's because the person writing the essay doesn't really have a grasp on what makes a strong essay of this kind, particularly for what I'm looking for. And 
And so I have to say, no, sometimes I try to guide them, but it doesn't mean they, it doesn't really mean anything about them, but it's very easy to assume when someone doesn't want your work, that they don't want you, that no one would want your work, that your work has no value. I liken it to relationships. Uh, I'm married. I have been married for a long time, but I used to date a lot when I was a young fellow. And I came to realize that when people break up, I really came to see it as the person who ended it, if it was one person, simply was the first one to recognize the relationship wasn't working. I, I, I do not believe the relationship can be great and one person wants out. I always think they just simply saw this isn't working. And so they ended it. And I think that publishing is like that. You're not looking for someone to validate you just the same way you wouldn't look for a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband or wife so you can feel good about yourself. You want a companion. You want a friend. And a publishing experience is a relationship. So in my case, if you're traditionally published, you need to find someone who's into what you're into, who gets it who is excited, as excited as you are. And mm. that's a relationship. And that requires, Joanna, you to validate yourself, the value of what you're offering. Right? Yeah, I, I think that finding someone who's into what you're into, it's the same as an independent author, but sure. we're looking for readers. So yeah. the, it's the same it, we, thing. Yeah, you have to find readers who are into what you're into. And that's right. But it's interesting around self-doubt because I think a lot of the what, what you've been talking about there is almost within the writing process. And in fact, I have on my wall here a little sign. It says trust emergence, as in something's yes. going to emerge yes. yeah. eventually if yeah. I just keep going to the page. But then there's also, I mean, I've written like 30 plus books now and I'm going to write in a new genre. And I feel massive right. self-doubt about writing yeah. a new genre because well, I feel like I'm starting all over again. I'm putting myself out there in a different way. I feel vulnerable about it. It's yeah. going to have memoir in. So this is a yeah. lot of personal stuff. And I guess my question is, can there ever really be an end to self-doubt? Well, I think, well, I think what it's like is um, in my last book, Fearless Writing, I talked about mastery and I defined it this way. I tell this story. It's a pretty famous story in the martial arts community of I took Aikido. And there's the, the guy who founded Aikido was named Morihai Ushiba, but they called him O-sensei, meaning first teacher. And Aikido is a, is a defensive martial art. And the whole key to it is staying balanced. If you're in balance, then it's very hard to knock you over. And it's very easy to throw someone who's attacking you because attacks always put people off balance. So the whole point, you stay on balance, stay on balance, stay on balance. That's like the whole practice. And there's a story of where one of O-sensei's uh, students, one of his longtime students is watching him and just can't believe how grounded and balanced O-sensei is. Until finally, the student comes up to him and says, O-sensei, I train every day. And every time I train, I am off balance. And then I watch you and you are never off balance. How do you do it? And O-sensei says, oh, no, no, no. I am frequently off balanced. I am just very fast to get back on balance. And so what you're wanting is the difference. Like it's never going to happen that the thought won't come into your head. What if I can't do this, right? I mean, it's I, you can't inoculate yourself against it, but you don't have to spend days swimming around in wondering about the future. You can, with practice, say, well, I don't know what's going to happen, but I do know I'm interested. Is that enough? 
Can I be okay with that being enough? Not understanding where, what will happen with this book? Well, that happens to me every time I write. I don't know really what's going to happen with this book. I don't know where it's going. I don't know who's going to buy it. You know, I interviewed Alice Hoffman, who sold like, what, 30 books. I don't think she's ever been rejected. She's had her movies made. She's won her awards. And I was talking to her and she was like, every time I write a book, I think, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how Mm. to write a book. Every time she starts a new one. And every time she's in the middle, she thinks, this is just not going to work. I can't, I won't get it and no one will like it. And then she finishes it. So she's going through that process again and again. The question is, how much time will you spend in the self-doubt? And you can begin, what I've realized is I've gotten faster and faster at letting that thought go, realizing there's no way to answer it. There's no way to answer that question. What will happen? You don't know. You got to focus on what you do know. And what you always know is I'm interested. Can I be more interested in how I translate this new idea? than in who will like it. That's down the road. I'll figure that out once I'm actually finished with it. Because by the way, Joanna, until you finish the book, you don't really know how to sell it, for instance. Like you got to finish it. You got to know what the heck you've got. Even though if you have a concept of it, I don't think until you've reached the end, you really understand what you're trying to write. And then you could have a sense of how you sell it. And so like, it's never going to go away, but, but you don't have to wallow in it. You don't have to indulge the thought. You don't have to answer the question, what if no one likes it? You, you can't answer it, for one thing. And you don't even have to address it. You know, because the book, Everyone Has What It Takes, really is an attempt to address the question, what if I don't have what it takes? And it's an unanswerable question. Hmm. The think, question you should never ask it, frankly. Yeah, I think also... Sometimes self-doubt is justified. For example, when you're writing your first novel, there's a lot you need to learn. Or in fact, even when you're writing your 10th novel, there's always something to learn. But I think we need to recognize what category the self-doubt goes into. I would just just want to get rid of the word doubt. It's, It's semantics, but I will push back just a bit in that doubt is wondering, it is perfectly legitimate to say, I don't know how to do this. I have to learn. And I want to learn if I even want to do it, right? Like, am I interested enough to put the work in to figure out? Because like writing a novel is a whole thing, right? Writing a book is a whole thing. You don't know how to do it. You got to learn. And you also got to learn if you want to do it. Like sometimes you got to do it for six months to go like, this is just not my thing. I'm not interested. Like I want to do something else. Less like a relationship. So it's perfectly, it is legitimate to say, I don't know. But you don't have to doubt yourself. You've got to pay attention to what you do know, which is I'm interested. And that has to be enough to see how far can I go with this? Because the doubt is just saying, well, what if I don't? But there's no way to answer that. There's no way to answer what if I can't? What if I don't? Until you get there. And then you'll know if you care. Because I will say, because when if, if you had told me, I didn't publish my first book, really. And I started writing novels, books when I was 25. And I didn't really publish till I was, what, like 50? Really? If you had told me, okay, get ready, good 20, 25 years, I would have said, just kill me now. Like, I, like that is, un, I cannot do that. I will, I will never be happy for that time. That is unlivable. But I was wrong. And so if I said, what if I don't publish them? I didn't, wouldn't have known how to answer. And I learned how to live and not publish them. I had to do it by experience. Yeah. Does that make sense? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I also do want to come back on the other bit of the title is everyone has what it takes. And again, this comes back to your relationship thing. I've been doing this really since 2006. I started writing properly. And so many people have left the industry, so many writers, some people, some people really do only have one book in them, or they just decide I'm done, you know, so Mm -hmm. does everyone really have what it takes? Or when is it okay to quit? Well, So I was teaching this class on everyone has what it takes. And if I could have written the whole title, it would have been everyone has what it takes to do to succeed at the thing they love to do. And so everyone has what it takes to do the thing they love to do. It may not be writing, right? Mm. No, everyone does not have what it takes to be a writer because not everyone wants to write. Not everyone wants to sit alone in front of a blank page. There's a lot of people who need the thing they do to involve other people. And writing just, it may eventually, but a lot of that time is spent without other people. So everyone has what it takes to, and if it's just write one book, well, then that's fine too. Like there's no one career that is correct, right? Mm. You don't have to write, you know, it's not fair to say that if you write three books a year, those books must be crap or it's what's wrong with you. You're only producing one book every five years. You must be lazy. Or what was wrong with the woman who wrote To Kill a Mockingbird? But she only wrote one. Uh, you can, you know, what's up with J.D. Salinger? He quit publishing, you know, so there's no one way to do it. But I believe, I believe is too weak a word. I know people are all perfectly equipped to do the thing they absolutely want to do. And if that changes, in other words, if novel writing, in other words, for instance, that sketch comedy show started because of poetry. And I kind of ran out of poetry. I just stopped sort of the, the, when I tuned my dial to the poetry, they stopped coming, but suddenly I was performing the poems and those became theater, became sketch comedy. It just evolved. I, I saw the sketch comedy. I know it's weird as an evolution of poetry readings in its own way. And so maybe it'll change. I thought I was a novelist. I was, for instance, I was sure I was a novelist. Like that was it. And if you had told me what I was going to write, I would have said, you are thinking of somebody else. I don't even walk into that part of the bookstore. I want nothing to do with that kind of stuff. And now that's what I do. I had to evolve and learn what it is I actually want to do. So I think everybody has what it takes to do the thing they love to do. Their job is to find what that is. You know, the poetry became theater because I was the performance side of it I was really interested in. And the novels became, became creative nonfiction. I didn't know. I knew I wanted to write when I was 25, but I didn't really know what it was. And I just chose fiction because that's what I first was drawn to as a reader. Even though when I started writing fiction, I had stopped reading fiction. So if I was really tuned in, I would have noticed like, that's not where you're you're at anymore. But I still stuck with it for 20 years. Mm. Um, And so it took me, it was hard journey for me to come to finding what it is I really love to do. And, And so I say when everyone has what it takes, You can't sit around wondering if you have what it takes. You'll never be able to answer that. The only question you can answer is what is so interesting to me? What's the thing that that you have the answer to? 
Mm. And that changes over time. I think yeah. what you've said there is really important because, and I always say to people, it's it's more like skiing. It's like a zigzag down the yeah. life, the the slope of life. In that, yeah. you, like you did, you're like, okay, I, I like poetry, and then it's like mm, not quite. I'm the same. I did poetry in my younger years and got published as a poet, and then yeah. uh, I, it, it disappeared. It wasn't the thing, and then I went in another direction, and and now I'm about to to start writing in a in another genre. And yeah. is is that what you've seen? Uh, I mean, you've interviewed so many writers as part of your author to author podcast. Yeah. Have you seen this zigzag across people's oh, careers sure. in general? Sure. Some not, you know, some really, they find their thing and they do it. Right. It's like science fiction, science fiction, science fiction, and that's it. Right. Or romance, 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 but other people zigzag. Yeah, absolutely. But even you're always having to, I always say your job isn't to get out of your comfort zone. It's to keep up with your comfort zone. I think it's always moving. I think you're always evolving. And my job is to keep up with myself. And so my work is similar, but it's changing. You know, the work I do now, it's very similar because it's about creativity and sort of spirituality, and, but it's growing and it's evolving. And I see it in the other writers I've interviewed, how it's grown and changed and sometimes changed dramatically and sometimes just change subtly because they've really found the thing they love to do. But absolutely. Absolutely, it changes, sometimes subtly and sometimes absolutely dramatically. And I just interviewed one of my friends, David Laskin. He had been a journalist for a while. He had written a bunch of like journalistic narratives and some of them been in bestsellers, you know, and he'd done really well, but he made a huge switch and wrote his first novel at 65 or whatever. And, and he had tried to do it as a memoir. It got rejected. He got rejected for the first time in his long writing life. And he was very distraught, but he turned it into a novel and it's, it's doing great. And that was, that happened in his sixties. It was a huge departure, but he did it and it was fantastic. So yeah, of course, mm. people change it. You got to follow yourself. You got to be able to ask yourself, what do I want now? What's interesting to me now? You know, I know this was interesting yesterday, but is it still interesting in the same way? You gotta, you keep, you're like a tree that keeps growing. I always think the tree is such a great analogy. I've got one in my backyard, this apple tree. It's like, it's complete, but it keeps growing. You know, it's complete. It's a total tree. Like there's nothing missing from it. And yet it keeps changing. Hmm. I think we're like that. Yeah. And again, just coming back on all the authors you've interviewed, what else have you seen in terms of commonalities of long term success with a writing career, whether that might be practice or business stuff or or what have you noticed? Oh, it's it's definitely write the thing you love. Like that is the common thread through. And I've interviewed writers of every all shapes and sizes, you know, romance, memoir, poetry, screenplays literary fiction, whatever. And it's always, they just love the thing. They just love that story. And I think that is it. Love is the organizing principle of the universe. It's the fuel that drives creativity. It's the light that you follow through the jungle. It's everything. So that is it. What's the story you love to read? You love to tell. What excites you? What story has your unconditional attention. What are you interested in just because you're interested in it? That is absolutely the most common thing. All have that in common. Everybody approaches business differently. You know, most of them have a writing routine, but not all of them. Some of them don't. Some of them do. There is no, like some outline, some don't. 
I knew one woman who wrote novels and the way she wrote them is she only did the dialogue first. So she just wrote complete dialogue. Then she'd go back and put the prose in. I was like, what? But yeah, that's how she did it. So there's no one way to write, but although I would say do try to come up with a regular time to write if you can, like it's a good idea, but there are writers who say, I do it on the airplane. I do it on the train. I do it wherever I can. So there's always an exception. But the one thing that there is not an exception to, I think, is that the writer loves the story. And mm. I know that sounds pat, but like you'll never be better at anything than the thing you love to do, period. If you love doing it, that's the best you'll be. So yeah. find the story you love. Yeah, I think that's right. I, what's interesting is we're, obviously we're recording this. We're still in pandemic times yeah. and you write a lot about mindset and obviously yeah. creativity. And yet, even if we love writing, a lot of people have suffered from burnout, mental health issues. It's yeah. I mean, even like I get my inspiration from traveling. So my well is dry, basically, which right. is one of the reasons I'm looking at different genres, because I, I I'm struggling with writing what I normally love so how do we deal with this should we just force ourselves into it or should we really listen to what's going on and change what we do so the question is what how do you deal with burnout because of the say the circumstances we're in is that is that what you're yeah yeah exactly yeah i think that i never i think of conditions like a surface I stand on. So to go back to the Osensei metaphor, remember, he just wanted to be balanced. The conditions are like the surface. So sometimes I'm trying to walk on a balance beam and sometimes I'm standing on flat ground. I can always find my balance, but it's easier. So for you, your creativity, you had learned, I will say this, you learned to be inspired by, you discovered that you, you, you could be inspired by um, traveling, right? You, mm-hmm. you found inspiration in that. I would posit to you, your inspiration comes from the same place everybody's does, which is inside you. It actually didn't come from outside of you, but the experience was one that you found easily sent you into where inspiration was. And I can never attribute my complete well-being to my conditions. Now, there are conditions like being in the middle of a war zone that would be like walking on a tightrope for me and I fall off a tightrope. But somewhere is someone who can be at peace in a war zone. I'm not that person now, but I didn't think I was the person who could live with all that rejection and be okay. And I was. To me, that was a tightrope and I fell off it, but I learned how to walk it. So I would say if you're feeling down because conditions have changed, your situation has changed, you are feeling, you never want to feel that your happiness is dependent on something outside your own heart because that can always go away. And so I would say, look in. Maybe this opportunity to do this work is a way of teaching you that you're more, even more creative than you thought that you have a wellspring that doesn't rely on that completely. There's nothing wrong with it. It's like, there are a lot of things I do which help bring out creativity in me, but I never want to mistake the activity for the creativity itself. 
Like I love to write. Writing is great. I love the experience, but it's still, it's not the writing I love. It's where I go when I write. And it's easiest to go there while writing, but I can go there just sitting in a chair by myself. Like it's not dependent on the writing. The writing just helps me get there. We're going deep here, Joanna, but I think that's kind of what you're asking. You know, do I need these conditions to be that way, to be creative? And I say, no, let this opportunity, let this experience be an opportunity to learn where your real creativity is, which is really always inside you. It's always coming from within you. Does that make sense? It does. Although you also talked about you have to follow your curiosity and what you love and what you're curious about. And I'm basically curious about places and um, historical things. Here's what I would say. Here's what I would say then. Then this is what you do. You say, okay, because that's not going away, right? Obviously, that's not going away. That curiosity, you can't make your curiosity go away. It doesn't go anywhere. But then you say, okay, so what do I do with that? I'm used to having the opportunity to literally physically go out and follow that curiosity across the globe. How does that curiosity express itself now? Maybe there's a way it expresses itself that you simply haven't found. You're so used to being able to do it this other way for obvious reasons. And by the way, you'll get to do it again. You know, that'll come back. But maybe there is another way for it to express itself that you haven't discovered yet because you may not have asked the question. You may have assumed it had to go this way that you simply never asked the question. And so you didn't discover the answer. Well, in my case, I I just decided to travel in my own country. So I'm writing books about my own country instead of other places. But I want to come back to what you said. Uh, You said, I have a lot of things I do that bring out creativity in me. So what are those things? Well, doing this, honestly, I was like conversation. So I play the piano and I write music. So I like that's a sort of a hobby of mine that might be might have been a profession if I were a slightly different person. So that for sure. I design games. I'm a game designer, role-playing games. I and the podcasts are creative. You know, it's a conversation. Like I don't prepare anything, but that I mean, it doesn't matter. Some people prepare, some people don't. But I look upon it as just like, let's see what's going to happen. I'm so interested to learn about this person. It's a creative, it's a what we call a co-creative experience. I feed off of them, they feed off of me. Um conversations, workshops, clients, all these things generate creativity in in me because I have to think differently about that moment. I have to think differently about the client. I have to think differently about the guest. I have to think differently about the song I'm writing, the game I'm designing. All of it's creative. Really, you know, Joanna, really all of life is creative. Like the more I have learned to see my life away from the desk as no different from my life at the desk, the more I'm able to see myself as the author of my life, not just this person dealing with it and managing it and reacting to it, the better I've been. The more I can see the whole life experience as creative, the like it, like my life is a blank page, the happier I am and the more I thrive and the better husband and father and friend I am. I always benefit when I see life itself as a creative act. Yeah. 
Mm, no, I, I agree with you. I think there's so much that can be creative. I guess, obviously, this show is very much about the business of being a writer as well as the art. And so there you talked about music, you talked about game design. Are these creative play activities or are these creative yeah. business activities? Well, they've been both. I mean, I published, I'm an award-winning game designer. We published a bunch of these things through a company, but I also do it for fun. The music is for fun, but I think I secretly wish it was a profession, but I'm shy about my voice, my singing voice, not my speaking voice, but my singing. So I haven't <laughs> allowed it to become more than a, a uh, an extremely prolific hobby. <laughs> but um, I try to see all of my work as play as much as possible. I, I say everything I'm paid to do, I would happily do for free. I also like getting paid for it, but that's my framework. I, I know how to work I know how to do things that I don't really want to do and get paid for it. And I spent a long time doing that and I'm not interested in that anymore. Now I want to see how I can make money doing something that feels like fun. In fact, I, this is true. I was just doing, so recording the, the book yesterday at this lovely studio here in Seattle. And so I go there and there's a guy, there's a, there's the technician is there. And then we've got this director who's, I don't know, in LA or something, we're all wired together. And I got my headphones on and, Will, the the engineers, this really sweet guy, just as we're about to start, he's like, man, isn't this fun? <laughs> Guys, can you believe we get to be paid to do this? Isn't this great? And I was like, man, he is singing my tune. He is singing my tune. Yeah, no, I'm I'm with you. I, I love all this. I love the podcast as well. And I, I also think it it is creative. It's interesting how People seem to talk about podcasting as marketing, but I think you and I can <laughs> see that it's actually a, a creative process. And, and as you sure. say, often I, I change my mind in talking to people or I get sure. ideas when I'm talking to people. And um, so when you but in your author to author magazine and the podcast and everything, obviously, you know, book marketing is a practical, oh, yeah. a practical part of, of the business. Yeah. So yeah. Do you, wh- what are your thoughts on that? I mean, you're an author, you have the magazine, you have all this stuff. Um, so what do you do for book marketing personally? I always say, I actually teach one of my most popular classes, Joanna, I teach is called fearless marketing. Ah, wonderful. Yeah. Because, but I will say what I always say when I teach the class is like, I'm not going to actually teach you how to do any marketing. (laughs) What I'm going (laughs) to teach you to do is stop hating it because you can't do it well until you stop hating it. And so the way, what I think about marketing, here's the first thing I think of. I'm trying to define the conversation I'm offering. So like I go to a writer's conference, right? I like to go to a writer's conference and teach back. Well, once again, I will go to them. And every classroom is offering a different conversation. Some are talking about like, how do you use social media? Another cl- one is like, how do you have a, a grabber opening? Mine is about the sort of emotional challenges of writing. All the conversations are legitimate. You know, how do you world build? All these are good conversations for writers to have. This is the conversation I want to have. And so I try to describe the conversation accurately in the little brochure and say, who wants to come? And people want to come. It's the conversation I'm interested in. And so that's the first thing I think it's really helpful for writers. Define the conversation. If you write romance, you want to be with other romance writers who who want to, they, they want to think about romance in that way. They want to think about love and relationships in that way. I'm interested in creativity and spirituality. That's a different conversation. You know, you go to a party and it's like, they're talking about politics over here and soccer over there and science fiction over there. What conversation do you want to be a part of? That's the first thing I say. And then find, there are so many 
different ways to market yourself, find the thing that you are most interested in. I like to write essays, blogs. So I do that because that, and, and with the theory that if you like my blog, you might like my book. It's the same kind of stuff. And if you listen to my podcast, I mean, technically, uh, Joanna, my podcast, it's my platform, as you know, that word, right? Mm. But my platform is just, I like talking to people who make stuff. And it, it took an agent saying, Bill, you have a platform. I was like, no, I don't. I just have a bunch of things I like to do. And she said, that, that's a platform. What do you <laughs> think a platform is? And so I do the things I like to do. I like talking to people in these interviews. I like uh, doing workshops for people. And I like writing essays. And I post them on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram now. I'm figuring that out. But I let it be an expression of the stuff that interests me. There's a lot of things you can do. I knew someone who marketed his book by giving readings at dive bars. Like that was his big idea and it worked for him. Another one did his readings on subways. He thought that was a great idea. I'd never do that, but he liked doing that. (laughs) Right. No, sounded awful, but to him, it was an inspiration. So I would say to your listeners, try to approach marketing with as much creativity as you can. It's great having someone like Joanne because you say, oh, you know, I really want to do, say, I really want to dive into social media. That seems so cool. There are people like yourself or lots of people out there who say, okay, I will now teach you how to actually do it, but let's figure out what you're interested in. There's no one right way to market a book, I don't think, in the same way there's no right way to write a book. But you got to find the thing that you think is cool about it and you can't hate it. You can't turn your nose up at it. You can't think it's slimy. You can't think um, nobody wants to hear from me. You got to be as interested in like, how do I find the people who are interested in the same stuff I'm interested in? How do I, like, what would be the best way to, how would I describe this conversation such that people who are interested in it could recognize it as the kind of conversation they would want to have? That to me is the friendliest way to think about marketing because that's really what it is. You know, I, I'm on Twitter sometimes and people are basically saying, buy my book, buy my book. And I'm like, that, that can't work. That can't work. Like, I, it, like what's, the, what's in it for me? I got to know why, what I'm being offered in this experience you want me to pay for. What's in it for me? And so when, if I can define a conversation, and again, probably like your fiction writers won't see it that way. But it is. It's a conversation. You start a story, the reader finishes it. Think of all you have to leave out in your stories that the reader's imagination fills in. That's a conversation. Mm. So that's how I would define it. Because then you know what it is you're really offering the people that they're getting from the experience. Yeah. And I like that you say define the conversation because I think for nonfiction, it is a title. I mean, the reason yeah, we're talking yeah, is because it's in your, the title. Right? Yeah, your book, your book title included the end of self-doubt. And I'm like, yeah, right. we should talk about that. <laughs> right. And, right. And, and and for fiction, I almost feel it's the promise of the genre, the title, yes. the cover, yeah. the yeah. hook. I mean, you have to make it very clear what you're offering, and That's then right. someone chooses to join that conversation. That's right. That's right. And I've worked a lot with writers and I find that that's one of the most common things is they don't want to sell. Like they don't see themselves as salespeople. They see it as odious and, and kind of beneath them in like, you know, just, it seems like it, they don't like being sold. 
but they do like having conversations they want to have. And so they've got to see it in a friendly way. Got to see, and every book's a conversation about something, about weakness and strength, about love or loss, about what's cool, about violence. You know, it's always about something, right, from a certain angle. And so define that for yourself. And as an author, you want, you are so interested in that conversation. There's no way you can write a book and not be. And so you just got to know there's other people out there who want to have that conversation too. Absolutely. Brilliant. So where can people find you and your books and everything you do online? Well, my book, my the hub of my internet empire, Joanna, is williamcanower.com. So you can go there and obviously there's links to books. There's links to my podcast, to author magazine, to my coaching. If I remember, I post things I'm doing there in terms of like online workshops and stuff. So williamcanower.com has, I work, I am a writing coach. I'm kind of like a life coach for, I'm not a book editor, book doctor, but I do help people with their craft and also with the many, many emotional challenges writers face. Like, why should I do this? Am I any good? That's sort of my sweet spot. So I work with people one-on-one with that. And of course, it's all over Zoom now. Anyway, go to williamcanower.com. And if you want to learn more, it's all there. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time, Bill. That was great. Thank you, Joanna. Keep doing what you're doing. It's awesome. So I hope you found the interview with Bill interesting and that it gives you some things to consider for your own writing journey. I certainly find that self-doubt is just part of the creative journey. And if I'm experiencing it, then I must just be in that part of the cycle. It will rise and fall with each project and I just have to do my best and keep creating. For more on self-doubt, writer's block, fear of judgment and much more, plus tips for surviving the roller coaster of being an author, check out The Successful Author Mindset, one of my most personal books, which contains excerpts from my journals. You are not alone. We all go through these things. So next week, I'm talking to Rishi Dastidar about the craft of poetry, as well as traditional publication options and marketing your creative work. So happy writing. And I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.